So, Will. Yes? In this movie, we are led to believe that the Norse gods were on Earth fighting frost giants in front of humans. Jotuns. Jotuns. Sometime, honestly, probably during the time Christ is alive. Is it not in the 900s? Don't they have that timestamp in Tonsberg? Is it 900s? Uh, they did, but is it like nine? Uh, oh yeah, was it 900 CE? Yeah. Okay, so this movie is expecting you to believe that during the era when most of the Vikings were transitioning out of the Norse religion and into Christianity, that is when the Asgardian gods showed up. And fought Jotuns. We're lucky they did. If if they hadn't, the Jotuns would have taken over and frozen the world. So, I'm curious, Will. What is a secret history that is fully unbelievable? Because considering the fact that there weren't as many Norse pagans when this happened, let alone starting a religion, that a movie is expecting you to buy. I mean, I've definitely talked about this to you before. I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast or not. But with the exception of the character designs, which I think are pretty cool, I am largely opposed to the occasional attempts to reclaim Disney's Atlantis, the Lost Empire. And the reason for this <laughs> is because I think it doesn't make any sense. So it doesn't. But the adventure stuff at the beginning is fun. The adventure stuff is fun. Mike Mignola did the character designs, which is great. Um, he's the artist who created Hellboy. That I'm fine with. My problem is that in this movie, Michael J. Fox... Uh, place an archaeologist named Milo Thatch, I cannot believe I retained all this, who goes to Atlantis, and then he's the guy who figures out how to get all the Atlantean technology working. Because in the millennia since the fall of Atlantis, the people of Atlantis have forgotten how to use their technology. Largely, it's a little white savory. It is a premise that I'm okay with. Except the movie uses a prologue to go out of its way to say, the people that Milo finds in Atlantis are the same people who were in Atlantis before it fell. So it's not a matter of, like, they lost the documentation, they lost their connection to the technology, whatever. No, it's just a bunch of people forgot, and nobody remembered. Can't and I don't they, know. Like, barely they even lost read the their own language? Man. So they right. all just became illiterate? And it's never really said that, like, it's a Tower of Babel situation where, like, that knowledge was stripped from them. They just forgot. I mean, it's a terrible choice, but I think the movie is kind of fun. I mean, I like the dude who, like, is a rat man who eats dirt. Uh, the blonde mercenary lady is also incredibly sexy. I was gonna say, you can call her hot. Yeah. They're all fun. It's a great team. Yeah, it is just a, a baffling aspect of that movie. That it kind of all hangs on. My favorite secret history is, of course, The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Alright. <laughs> the fact that... This is, you know, deep history on this planet, and that all of this happened, and the elves of our legend are the elves that have faded. Wait, so you're saying your your favorite deep history is the fact that the Lord of the Rings theoretically took place on our planet? Yeah. Okay. You know, you know that this is the story, right? I did know that. I just wasn't sure if you meant, like, the fact that, like, hobbits don't know about major political events, and I was like, no, they just, like, don't care. Yeah, it's more the fact that dinosaurs <laughs> exist in the movie, or the books do nothing to contend with what happened in between the fact that humans have somehow been alive that long. So, were people and dinosaurs coexisting? At Amazon Studios, you've already spent half a billion dollars to make so far zero episodes of the Lord of the Rings show. All I'm saying is, put some dinosaurs in there. <sighs> Imagine if it wasn't even, like, the Nazgul's flying beasts or dragons that they kind of shoehorned into being dinosaurs, but just a Stegosaurus is walking in the background of a shot. Right. They did put out a release date, not a concrete oh, one. Oh, did they? Yeah, but they said, like, it will come out next year. I think okay. in the fall of 2022. The Wheel of Time show is actually happening. I did not believe that one was coming, but that's November of this year. That's also implied to be our planet. That's news to me. Yeah, it's like, I know you know nothing, but there's like an age of legends in the past where they have more technology, and then it's a cycle. It's a, a wheel of time, you might say. And so it's implied that like one of the past ages, the age of legend, was our age where our technology seems magical. Not the one that has people like alive from the age of legends in the books. 
but like even further in the past. So it's kind of like like with Conan, where it's like there's just an additional age that we don't acknowledge, like the Haborian age. Yeah, like I think the book has something like seven ages that go in a cycle and similar events repeat in each. Okay. And so it's implied that one of them is ours. This is all appropriate stuff to be talking about for this episode, both because like Norse myth itself is cyclical in that way, but also because a lot of the stories that we are pulling are very much drawn out of the pulp novels that also influence the Marvel comics. And I mean, Norse mythology is a huge influence on the Lord of the Rings as well. Right. Obviously. Most of my Norse myth is through Marvel comics. So like, I'm aware that like, I have a sense of a lot of pieces of it, but I don't know how they traditionally fit together. Neil Gaiman's book where he just that's a very good stories is very good. And that's where a lot of my like thought process comes in. It is weird revisiting after playing, like, God of War and Valhalla a little bit. It is weird revisiting, like, the Valhalla as good guys, because there's been so much deconstruction of that in recent media. Sure. So it's just, like, expected to believe Odin was a wise ruler and a good king. Which is a thing that, I mean, Odin is portrayed as complicated in this movie he is a much grumpier and and pettier god in the comic books and by thor ragnarok they are making conversations about like asgard as an imperialist state much more explicit is anthony hopkins still playing odin in these movies today i am not sure if he's in love and thunder which is the fourth one that was shot earlier this year but he is in the first three wow um, Odin dies in Thor Ragnarok, but again, it's a Norse mythology, so. Does he actually die? It's not just Odin sleep, my favorite thing about this movie. Uh, no, he does actually die. But before that, there's a really fun scene where at the end of Thor the Dark World, which is the second one, Thor has a conversation with Odin on the throne where Thor is like, yeah, still don't want to be king. Like, <laughs> happy being an Avenger of Earth. And Odin's like, all right, like, good for you. I'll keep minding things here. And then... Thor walks away and there's like a shimmer and it's revealed that it was actually Loki in disguise as Odin. And so then in Ragnarok, Loki is still running things pretending to be Odin. He has like put Odin in an old folks home on Earth and like stripped his magic from him. So there are some fun scenes on Asgard of Anthony Hopkins playing Loki as Odin. I should watch the later ones in this series. Also, we should probably start talking about... I am more fond of the Thor movies than... A lot of people are. Basically, everyone loves the third one, which is the Taika Waititi one. I have a decent amount of affection for the first two, but you could definitely just jump to Thor 3. Okay. Well, that's good to know. I also did not realize, because we should just... Okay, we should start the episode. We will discuss my relationship to Thor in the future. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I am a ginger, and this is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining... One of the least important issues facing the world today, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And is this one of the most romantic Marvel movies? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are taking our second look at the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe with Kenneth Branagh's 2011 franchise starter, Thor. So, I am not a huge Marvel fan. I think... I saw Iron Man, Thor, and Avengers in theaters, and since then, I have not engaged with pretty much any Marvel content except for WandaVision. And you saw Black Panther. Oh, and Black Panther. But yeah, so that's about it. I think I've seen all three Iron Man movies, but then probably only three others. So I did not realize, as an outsider, that people didn't like Thor, because I remember seeing it in theaters and being like, this is silly and fun, and I am enjoying it. I agree with you. Thor is actually the only Marvel movie that I did not see in theaters because I was busy opening weekend and I asked my friends about it and they were like, eh, it's fine. And I never got around to it. And I didn't even see Thor until like 2013. Like I saw the Avengers without having seen Thor. Wow. I can't believe I saw a Marvel movie before you. But yeah, I have a lot of affection for the Thor movies, especially the first two. They are kind of messy. I like Thor The Dark World a lot more than most people. Like, a lot of people, that is their shorthand of, like, that's the worst Marvel movie, which is a crazy opinion. But, like, that one is, like, playing on the epic scale of these figures and their, like, epic scale emotions and all of that, which I appreciate. Like, I think the villain is unfortunately a dud, but 
that movie has more interesting stuff to do with the Thor-Loki relationship than anything else. I just think that this movie is directed by Kenneth Branagh, and you can kind of tell, and it's just got a lot of very silly things happening. Kat Denning plays a political science major who is somehow an intern for an astrophysicist, an objectively hilarious decision. Yeah, which they acknowledge, like, I love the throwaway line where Stellan Skarsgård is like, why did you hire a political science student? And Jane is like, she was the only applicant. It's great. It's just so goofy, and it doesn't take itself seriously at all. No, and I think that's part of what I like about Thor, is that this movie is kind of a comedy. I left the theater thinking that I had watched a mostly, a, like, comedy adventure movie. I thought it was directed yeah. to be comedy. And it's the kind of thing, I think when you announce a Thor movie, and we'll talk about the production of this, because like all the early Marvel movies, there's a lot going on. When you announce this movie in, like, 2008, people are like, alright, this is gonna be another Lord of the Rings riff. And this movie, it's, it's weirdly structured. There's like a cold open with our scientists. And then there's a prologue with Anthony Hopkins narrating the history of the gods of Asgard defeating the Frost Giants. And that prologue feels very much like the opening of The Lord of the Rings. And then basically once Thor gets to Earth, it's pretty much a comedy. If a movie has a running joke about you hitting a person with a car, it's a comedy. <laughs> That's an inherently comedic premise that I laughed at every time when I can't remember. What's Kat Denning's character's name? Darcy. When Darcy says, how are we going to search all, like, all of New Mexico to find this man? And then she backs up slightly and hits him with her car. That's comedy. Babe, that's comedy. It's funny. I'm glad to hear you liking this because, like I said, Thor is a movie that I like and a movie that I like more than most. It's also one that... I really can just turn off my brain during it because I've seen this movie many times because I'm a person who often will like have like an iPad or something going when I'm asleep. I usually go to sleep to 30 Rock, but especially when I was in college, I would put on a movie that I knew and go to sleep to it. And I went to sleep to Thor a lot because I had a digital copy that came with the Blu-ray and I was like, all right, well, here's Thor. I think my very distant relationship to the Marvel Cinematic Universe allows me to appreciate Thor as just an independent thing, which a lot of people can't at this point. And I mean, this movie is early enough that there wasn't really like the Marvel Cinematic Universe beyond the little stingers at the end of the credits. So I was just watching this movie thinking just like, this is a silly, goofy movie about Thor it's like both an adventure and a fish-out-of-water comedy about a Norse god trying to make it in rural New Mexico. Yeah, at this point, you're kind of getting, like, MCU building blocks in some of these movies. Like, things that will be pulled on later or minor connections. We have Clark Gregg as Phil Coulson in this movie, who's been in both of the Iron Man movies by now. Um, actually, the post credit scene of Iron Man 2 is Coulson calling Fury from New Mexico saying they found a hammer. We also have Hawkeye in this movie. So, like, there are some bits there, but... You're right. It, it's a movie that mostly stands on its own, which is one of the nice things about the Phase 1 movies, with the exception of Iron Man 2, a movie that struggles a lot because of how much MCU building is happening in it. I just enjoy the elevated performances from every character. I mean, you know, this is the origin of, of the Anthony Hopkins NAR story. What's... I don't think I know this. They tell this story like on blank check every time an Anthony Hopkins performance comes up. But on the press tour for Thor, Anthony Hopkins was asked what made him want to take the role of Odin. And he'd done similar stuff before. He's Hrothgar in the Zemeckis Beowulf. Like, he's in this zone at the time. And Hopkins said he got the script for Thor, and he went through it, and wherever he had pages, he just made a little note at the bottom, N-A-R, which stood for No Acting Required. <laughs> Icon. The Wikipedia page for Thor is so funny. Because on the cast list, it has the character name, and nothing about the character, all of the main cast listings are how the person got involved in the movie, instead of anything about the character. Which I think is such a bizarre choice, and I love it. Where it's like, Natalie Portman joined the film because she wanted to work with Kenneth Branagh. Sure, for Portman, also, this is like her, she would have been coming off of filming Black Swan, which was a very stressful shoot, as you can imagine. Emotionally taxing, I would imagine, for sure. Yeah, this movie comes out, like, two months after No Strings Attached, and she openly said that, like, the reason she did No Strings Attached was she wanted to make something casual. I can easily see needing to do a NAR performance. 
after Black Swan. Yeah, and I think she's good in this movie. She's giving exactly the performance I need. Yes, I mean, that is the shame of this movie, is they do not use Natalie Portman enough. Yeah, and that's... The movies kind of struggle with what to do with her in general. Like, in Thor The Dark World, she's doing some kind of similar stuff, where she gets to do some science. She does get to visit Asgard in that one. But then, well, she's not in the third one, because they originally hired Patty Jenkins to direct Thor The Dark World. And Natalie Portman had been a big person pushing for Patty Jenkins to get that movie. And then it was one of those Disney and especially Marvel situations where you have interesting director hired and then clash with the studio, leave the project. And so then they brought in Alan Taylor, who directed a lot of Game of Thrones. The rumors are that Kevin Feige actually directed a lot of Thor The Dark World. And so contractually, they could have brought Natalie Portman back for Thor 3. And basically they were like, it's best for everyone if we don't do this. But she will be back in the fourth one. It's going to be based at least in part on the story arc where Jane Foster became a Thor. Yeah, I saw that. And I think that'll be interesting. But I mean, this movie does suffer. And Natalie Portman's role suffers from Marvel Universe's fear of romance and sex. Yes. Like, they are kind like, they're in love. But in this movie, I will say, of the Marvel movies I have seen is by far the most romantic. Yeah. And it's also a thing where I think the romance has declined now from where it was in these phase one movies. Like, I would say Iron Man, Thor, and Captain America, the first Avenger, all have, like, romance that, to some degree, you can feel. I would actually say Thor is the weakest of those three. Yes, but, I mean, so the Tony Stark-Pepper Potts relationship is better, but it's less of the traditional romance, because they're an established relationship. So it's very different. This is much more classic romance movie in terms of they meet in a weird like setup and then they slowly fall in love and then are separated by fate instead of being like two people that know each other very well and realize that they are in love with each other. Yeah. If you're interested in like watching another one of these, one of my favorites is Captain America the First Avenger, which does that kind of story arc you're describing with Chris Evans and Haley Atwell. And that's one where it is done so strongly that Haley Atwell, who was playing, like, a pretty minor character from the comics, like, has written her great performance in that movie and also, like, how compelling that relationship is to, like, she got a TV show, she was the star of the first episode of What If a couple of weeks ago, like, that character has become more consequential in the comics, just riding on that relationship. Absolutely cannot take the TV show What If seriously. You know, I, I was really trying to figure out a way that we could do a second What If bonus episode. But the weekly release for Disney Plus just doesn't work for our method. No, and I stand by my idea that if we were to do another bonus What If episode, it should be where we revisit the TV show What If on its, like, fifth anniversary. We'll consider. Maybe by then we'll have a What If season two. It hasn't been canceled. The TV show Netflix forgot to cancel. All right. Uh, So we're talking about Thor, which means, I mean, the biggest thing to talk about is, is our guy Chris Hemsworth. He's handsome. He is handsome. This is like a big breakout for him. This is kind of the first example of Marvel's strategy, which was less of a thing than it sometimes made out to be, but of hiring relatively unknown people, largely because they were cheap. And at the time, Marvel Studios was under the purview of Marvel president and Trumpist vampire Ike Perlmutter. So they hired Chris Hemsworth, who had been, of course, is Australian. He had been on Australian soap opera for a long time. His first real movie appearance in the U.S. is in the prologue to the J.J. Abrams Star Trek, where he plays Kirk's dad. After that, he shoots Cabin in the Woods. Cabin in the Woods was entirely filmed before Hemsworth was cast in Thor, but it doesn't come out until 2012. That's nuts. Yeah. It just sat on the shelf for a while. Hmm. Uh, Then, like, the same week that he gets cast in Thor, he gets cast in the Red Dawn remake, which also comes out in, like, 2013 or something. He had originally been denied a screen test for this movie. Like, his agent pitched him for it, and they were like, nah. Liam Hemsworth got one, Hmm. but obviously was not cast. And then Chris's agent successfully pushed for him to get a screen test, and then he got the movie. But this was one of those, like, Marvel castings. I remember following the Guardians of the Galaxy castings like this, where, like, every day in, like, Deadline or wherever, there's a report of, like, who's up and who's down in the casting for this next Marvel movie. The other big people in the mix were Alexander Skarsgård, Joel Kinnaman, Charlie Hunnam, and, of course, Tom Hiddleston, who auditioned for Thor. He's a better Loki. He is a much better Loki. And he's another guy who has, like, built a career out of that, like Haley Atwell. We just had the Loki show this summer. Oh, I forgot. I already, I didn't watch it, so I kind of already forgot. You know my favorite Chris Hemsworth performance, though? It's gotta be Bad Times at the El Royale. 
Oh, yeah, I forgot he's in that. He plays the, like, Charlie Manson character who comes in at the end and is looking for his drugs. And that's a Drew Goddard movie who directed Cabin in the Woods. Yes, very good movie. (laughs) Would recommend if you have not watched it. Yeah, pretty good time at the El Royale. (laughs) And I think the other thing that we've gotten out of Hemsworth really coming off of the 2016 Ghostbusters and since then is, like, people realized that he's funny. Yes. And when you let Chris Hemsworth be funny, it's the bomb. Well, he is funny in Thor. It's a different kind of funny. It's a different kind of funny. But, I mean, he is giving a comedic performance in many scenes. Right. In part, the joke here is just about how big he is. Yeah. And, I mean, the other joke is just, like, the fish-out-of-water vibe. Right. A crazy thing, according to reports, they did offer the role of Thor to Daniel Craig. That would have been a very different movie. It's just an entirely different thing. And he turned it down because of his commitments to James Bond. Someone else who is also very funny when he is allowed to be funny. Oh my gosh, yes. Uh, Knives Out 2. Knives Out 2 is shooting. It is shooting, and I'm so excited. Yeah. Our other big performance in this movie, of course, is Tom Hiddleston as Loki, who had acted with Kenneth Branagh before in the UK, which is how he got looped in. Branagh invited him to test. In the six weeks of lead time he had, Tom Hiddleston gave 20 pounds of muscle to look more Thorish. Which is a crazy thing to imagine doing. Yeah. Everyone in this movie is, like, distressingly jacked. Years ago, around the time of, like, Infinity War, maybe? Kyle Buchanan, who at the time was at Vulture and now is at the New York Times, did a ranking of Marvel movies to determine the gayest Marvel movie. Oh, I remember this. (laughs) And I have forgotten almost all of it, except that I have firmly remembered Thor, which came in ninth. And the big reason listed was Dutch angles are inherently gay. And every time I watch this movie, where, like, almost no shot is just level. They are all on a tilt. I just think, oh, yeah, Dutch angles are inherently gay. Oh, my God. I'd forgotten that line. I lost it when I read that. Do you remember what the gayest one was? I'm looking it up now. And number one is Thor Ragnarok with things of, like, when I was thinking about what pictures I wanted for this article, my first instinct was shirtless Hemsworth with Tessa Thompson and Kate Blanchett. Then I realized those are all from the same movie. Since Tessa Thompson is in it, we can assume this is Janelle Monet's favorite Marvel movie. <laughs> There's a Hulk nude scene if you're into that. Wow. I should watch this movie. Ragnarok is fun. If it's the gayest, that feels like I should at least watch that one. Yeah, I think you would enjoy it. It's a silly movie. You do see the Hulk's butt. I only like silly movies. Well, that's obviously not true. But the sillier, the better in many ways. For sure. So, as you said, this movie is directed by Kenneth Branagh. A baffling choice that I love. And I mean, I get why you hire him. Because he's made all these Shakespeare movies. And so you're like, all right. You get the guy who can do, like, make Shakespeare-y kind of stuff accessible. And we're going to give kind of a Shakespeare-y vibe to the gravitas of, like, this family and all of that. But it is nonetheless kind of weird. Yeah. And I gotta say, I don't love his not Shakespeare movies. Yeah, so uh, my contention is that Thor is Kenneth Branagh's best movie of the 2010s. I'm just scanning through again, and... I have not seen Jack Ryan's Shadow Recruit. I've heard okay things about Jack Ryan. I have also not seen All Is True. I can say the AARP Movies for Grown Ups Awards loved All Is True, which is the movie about, like, old Shakespeare hanging out with people. And that got nominated all over the place by AARP. I remember that, but very little about why. <laughs> but, like, Thor is, is, is better than Cinderella, which is a movie that's very pretty to look at, but like many of the Disney remakes, it is too long. Uh, it is better than Murder on the Orient Express, and it is sure better than Artemis Fowl. A movie that you hated more than anything else I have heard you talk about, I believe. It was an exhausting movie, full of terrible choices. An exhausting movie full of terrible choices is the worst combination. Now, there had been, like, noise about a Thor movie for a long time in the way that there was noise about any Marvel movie for a lot of time. This is something we talked about a bit in our Iron Man episode and our Spider-Man 3 episode. Like, for years before the superhero movie boom, people at Marvel, and especially Stan Lee, had been trying to make film adaptations of Marvel characters happen. Sam Raimi, coming off of Dead Man, pitched a Thor movie in the early 90s to Fox, but it didn't go anywhere. After the success of X-Men, Marvel started looking into making it as a TV movie for UPN. At another point, David Goyer was in talks to write and direct for Sony. 
but he got looped into the Nolan Batman movies instead. Sony sold the movie to Paramount, which is its connection to the MCU because Paramount distributed those movies before Disney bought Marvel. Paramount hired Mark Protosevich to write and Matthew Vaughn to direct it. They came up with a script together that Marvel said would cost $300 million to shoot. And Marvel said, you get 150. 300 is absurd. <laughs> right. Especially for a Thor movie in like 2006. Yes. <laughs> Matthew Vaughn left to do other things. Eventually he makes X-Men First Class, which is a very good superhero movie. Guillermo del Toro got pretty deep in talks to direct it. I would love to see Guillermo del Toro's Thor. Yeah, he's talked a bunch about how, like, he imagined, like, naturally, like, a much dirtier movie. He wanted, like, a muddy, grimy Valhalla. Whereas, like, the Branagh Valhalla, and the production designs by Bill Welch, is all, like, space aliens. Yeah, it's all space gold. (laughs) It takes the angle of, like, okay, they're not actually gods. They are aliens with crazy technology. And so everything looks like crazy technology. Like, there's this one shot at the beginning of the movie, at the end of the prologue, when you do the, like, the camera flip to Asgard, mm-hmm. you're, like, at this, like, place of crystals, and it flips over, and you're, like, then coming up across Asgard. And if you look on the right side of the screen, I've seen this movie many times. Um, <laughs> there is just this weird, like, floating thing of a couple of cylinders that are all floating, just kind of shifting levels a little bit. And you're like, what is that? I don't know what that is. It never comes up in any of the movies. I love it. I, just this, the space alien Asgard is just, it's so funny to me because they are the Norse gods. They're eating, they're feasting, they're like, ha ha, huzzah! But they're all in space-themed Viking outfits. And also the Jotuns are not actually, like, they're not given any science justifications. They just are magic. They're frost giants, yeah. It's all so funny. It's all silly. A movie that comes up with Odin sleep is just gets a pass in my book. Um, Thor the Dark World shows you a little more like Asgardian culture where like you get to see an Asgardian funeral and you see like some more people just like going around and it looks a little bit more like a place. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this kind of stuff walks the line between science and magic, which is explicit in the movie. Yeah, I mean, they pull the like any sufficiently advanced science is indistinguishable from magic line. Right. So finally, Thor was officially announced the week after Iron Man opened. Like, Iron Man opened, was a gigantic hit. Marvel was like, thank goodness we are not going to go under and become owned by Merrill Lynch. So they announced plans for Iron Man 2, Thor, Captain America, the first Avenger, the Avengers, and Ant-Man. So Thor really got underway at that point, and eventually we get the hiring of Branagh, the casting of Hemsworth, and, and you got a silly movie. I think the greatest choice this movie made is, like, getting as many prestige actors into it as possible. Which is fun. I mean, like, Rene Russo is criminally underused in this movie. Oh, I mean, yes. I was glad that they brought her back in Endgame and, like, finally gave her a meaty scene. She's great because she is just, like, in the background acting, whereas Anthony Hopkins is not but is still Anthony, he is still Anthony Hopkins, so he is inherently acting by existing. Yeah, Rene Russo gets like one good scene with Loki in The Dark World, and then in Endgame, they finally give her a good scene with Thor. She and Thor do not interact much. No. I guess, well, because Thor's not in Asgard that much in this movie. Yeah, he's yeah mostly on Earth. Also, just the fact that his dad banishes him and strips his powers and sends him to Earth as the, like, setup for how Thor gets to Earth is so good. So I actually went back and reread the first appearance of Thor in Marvel Comics for this, just because, like, I was having fun. I love Thor. Thor is not a comic that I always follow, like, every month, but sometimes I do. Like, Jason Aaron did a run of Thor for about eight years that I read and loved, and I'll occasionally pop in. So I went and reread Thor's first appearance in Journey into Mystery, back when comics had titles like that. And the premise there, they start with, like, this old man with, a, with like, a walking stick named Donald Blake. I guess he doesn't have the stick at first. This old man, Donald Blake, who's on vacation in Norway. And then he's just, like, hiking around in Norway. But unfortunately, that's the day that the stone men from Saturn arrived to invade Earth. Because this is very much a, like, late 50s, early 60s kind of sci-fi story. Uh, I the love it. The stone men from Saturn arrive to take over. And Donald Blake is, is chased into this cave where he finds, like, a gnarly stick. And he's hoping to find another way out because the stone men are coming. And he starts banging the stick around. And banging the stick turns the stick into the hammer Mjolnir and turns him into Thor. 
And for the rest of this comic, he just, like, turns into Thor and beats up the Stone Men. A couple issues later, it's revealed, like, oh, he had always been Thor, and Odin punished him by sending him to Earth as, like, an old man with a bad leg. (laughs) And so then, like, for years in Thor comics, it's a secret identity comic, where, like, Donald Blake is, like, going around living his life, like, with a bad leg and his walking stick, but when Thor is needed, he bangs the stick, and it turns into Mjolnir, and he turns into Thor, and he can do his superhero stuff. But there's... Like, all these rules with it where, like, if Thor goes too long without holding the hammer, he turns back into Donald Blake. Basically, nobody has bothered with this in years because it's less interesting than just, like, having Thor and doing his Guardian stuff. But, so, like, that's what they're referencing when Jane has that shirt with the name tag that's, like, Donald Blake MD. That's an Easter egg oh. for that stuff. I want to talk about that. I was going to bring it up. How long has this shirt been sitting unwashed in her apartment if the name, with a name tag, tag is on still it? on it? Yeah, I don't know. Because it doesn't sound like the most recent breakup. I assume he left it, and then there's just, like, a box of stuff she has not gone into. Yeah. But it is funny that she gave him just this disgusting old shirt, (laughs) if it has not been washed in so long. It's a weird thing. There are a bunch of things in this movie where you're like, this is just for people who are in the know, and it's an odd shot. Like, there are a couple of cameos of, like, big people involved in Thor comics. Like, you have the usual Stan Lee one, but there are others as well of of Walt Simonson and J. Michael Straczynski, where they are filmed so conspicuously. (laughs) Like, you could just, like, have somebody in the background, but it's, like, really selling you on, look at this guy who's sitting at the table. And I'm like, yeah, it's Walt Simonson. I know that. (laughs) But as a piece of this movie, it's very strange. (laughs) It is. They are. These moments are odd. But then, I mean, there's some weird stuff with them. You probably have not seen this. Sam Thielman wrote a piece in The Guardian a couple of weeks ago as we record about basically the crappy ways that comics writers, especially by Marvel, are paid when movies based on stuff they created make billions of dollars. In most cases, they get a $5,000 check and a thank you card. That's criminal. And the big quote in there that kind of blew my mind that I thought about seeing Straczynski and Simonson in this movie is that Ed Brubaker, who created The Winter Soldier, has a cameo in the movie Captain America, the Winter Soldier. And he said he earns more in residuals for his cameo in that movie than he does as the creator of the character for anything that character has appeared in, in movies. How is that? Oh, God. That's awful. That's so immoral. Yes. yes. That's disgusting. Yeah, it's it's pretty gross. Ugh. It's the history of the comics industry, too, but that doesn't make it any less gross. Yes. I mean, comics is an inherently immoral field, generally. It has been for as long as it's been around. Yes. And Thor, like many of these movies, made a ton of money. Even though, like, today it would be seen as, like, a disappointing Marvel movie. It still made a lot of money. It opened May 6th, 2011. This was the first year. No, it wasn't. 2008. The the very first. I was going to say this was the first year with multiple Marvel movies. But Incredible Hulk opened a month after Iron Man. I think I just you, like most people forgot that Incredible Hulk was. In yeah, there. I was about to say, I think you're not alone in forgetting that that is an existent film. Um, so, yeah, Thor opened on May 6th, 2011 in first place with a sixty five million dollar debut, which is pretty great. That's a lot of money. Yeah, it was ahead of movies like Fast Five, Jumping the Broom, Something Borrowed, and of course, the animated movie Rio. Ah, uh, Rio. Um, an interesting thing about Thor's opening is that when it opened, 75% of the screens it was on were 3D. God, 3D. Remember when you, like, couldn't escape it? Yeah, I mean, 2011 is really, like, year two of this. Because Avatar opens December 2009. And then spring 2010, Jeffrey Katzenberg goes up and is like, we should post-convert every movie. Yes. And then they were. And then they weren't when people did not like it. It's almost like when you post-convert a movie to 3D, it looks bad. But when you shoot a movie in native 3D, it can look really good. Can is also operative there. Yeah, but I feel like most of the time when something's shot in native 3D, I wind up appreciating it. Yeah, I mean, it is like a, it is an art form to shoot in 3D. Right, and it bums me out that we don't really get it that much because audiences caught on to the fact that they were being cheated, and so they won't pay to see good stuff in 3D either. Yeah, but now we have Dolby, and that makes it honestly more fun. I saw old in Dolby, pretty great. Uh, I think Mortal Engines was so much more enjoyable because we saw it in Dolby. Just a great movie. Just trash. I'm obsessed. I gotta find out if they've put out a 4K of that. Oh my god. Anyway. Alright, the other thing I wanted to do with Thor, um, Thor was enough of a hit, it ultimately grossed $181 million in North America. 
and an additional $268 million overseas, which made Thor the eighth highest grossing film of 2011 in North America. Wow. Yes. Every one of the top 10 movies of 2011 is a franchise movie. Ew. And I was going to ask you to try to uh, guess them for me. Okay, 2011. If you want to just start guessing, you can do that. Or I will give you hints. Uh, I'm looking at the Wikipedia list for the highest grossing films of 2011 in the U.S. Mm -hmm. I will give you the last actor listed, like the last actor on the list to have gotten solo card billing and will work my way up. Okay, so 2011, is there still a Twilight by that point? There is. Is it Breaking Dawn 2? Like, I can't remember. It's Breaking Dawn 1. 1, okay. Yeah, that was the third highest grossing movie of the year. Franchise. Did a Star... Is Star Wars... No, that's too early for Star Wars. Yes. Okay, start giving me hints. Okay, so starting from number 10, so I'm going based on people who got solo card billing, um, is and Andy Serkis. 2011 with Andy Serkis. Is that, is that a Hobbit movie? It is not a Hobbit movie. Those started in 2013, I think. Okay. Hmm. Is it uh, 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 King Kong? That was 2005. Okay. I'm not great at time, because it also, like... When I see the movie influences when I think it came out. Uh, okay, who is above Andy Serkis? David Ayelowo. And I'll give you the next one as well. Uh, Tom Felton is also in this movie. Is it? It's not Harry Potter. That's They were still coming out in 2011? There is a Harry Potter on this list, but it's not this one. Okay. So Deathly Hallows Part 2 then? Yep. Okay. That's the number one. It made $381 million in the US. Yeah. Okay, that tracks. I'm trying to think. Okay, so I was in high school. Let me position myself like this is also not a great time for me seeing movies because the asia box office is kind of weird so harry potter twilight thor thor okay go up one more okay i'm gonna give you two more so so far you've got an and andy circus david Ayello, along with david Ayello, tom tom felton brian cox john lithgow what is this movie i have no idea andy circus is doing mocap in this movie. yeah what has he done mocap in Besides Gollum. And again, it's a franchise movie. It's a start of a franchise. Okay, so it's the first in a franchise. Well, it, it's a revival of a franchise. Oh. I I think... I don't know. Your last two actors are Frida Pinto and James Franco. Um, a spy, Spider-Man movie? Uh, Amazing no. Spider-Man? No, that'd be 2012. Is it superheroes? No. James Franco is in this one. He is not in the sequels. Andy Serkis plays a much bigger role in the sequels. Okay, I give up. Eventually, famously riding a horse on one of the posters. Riding a Oh! 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 Planet of the Apes. Rise of the Planet of the Apes? Yes, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Good on you for getting that, because I always mix up that this series went Rise of the Planet of the Apes and then Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Yes, because the sunrise leads to dawn. I guess. Sure. All right, so yeah, number 10, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, Number nine, your last one is And Stanley Tucci. Um. Oh, it's a franchise movie. Yeah. Is Stanley Tucci superhero or not? Yes, superhero. This is a great performance by Tucci. Superhero movie with Tucci in 2011. Is it an X-Men movie? It is not. This is an off year for the X-Men. Okay. Okay, who's above Tucci? I'll give you three. Okay. Derek Luke, Neil McDonough, and Dominic Cooper. I don't think I know who any of those three are off the top of my head. Can you go one more up? <laughs> yeah. One more up gets you Sebastian Stan. Oh, uh, Winter Soldier. Nope, that's, uh, that's 2014. Later. Isn't that who plays Winter Soldier, though? It is. Okay. I feel at least good about that. So it's not Marvel or MCU. I didn't say that. It's it's Is it Iron Man 2? No, that's 2009. No, 2010. 2000, yeah. So three? <laughs> Did I read three come out the same year? No, that was later. 2013. Um, is it Spy? It's not Spider-Man? Nope. That was 2012. Uh, your next two are Haley Atwell and Hugo Weaving. Uh, Haley Atwell, Captain America, the first Avenger? There you go. Okay. So 10 is Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Nine is Captain America, the first Avenger. Eight is Thor. Seven is the only animated movie on this list. Is it a sequel or the start of a franchise? It's a sequel. Is it... It's a Pixar. Is it Cars 3? It is Cars 2. Cars 2. Okay. Yes. 
generally considered the worst Pixar movie. Yes. I feel pretty good about that one. Yeah. All right. Number six is a part of a franchise that is still ongoing. Its last one is um, a new character. Um, it's and Dwayne Johnson. Uh, Fast and the Furious, Fate of the... Or Fast 6. Mm. It's Fast 5. Fast 5. Okay. We have not gotten to that one at all. We've not reached yet. that. We're only at two. To be clear, we saw F9 cold. And then we started with one and two. And now we're working yes. our way through. Number five is a movie that I saw at midnight the night before my last day of high school classes, which was nice because it was kind of a delayed sequel. And I had seen the previous movie at midnight the night before my last day of eighth grade. Oh my God, that's a gap. Yes. These are movies that I loved very much. This one, I have only seen that opening night in theaters. And your, your first name is the last one. And it is an and Jeffrey Rush. Pirates of the Caribbean, Black Tide. No, something tied. Yeah, on Stranger Tides. On Stranger Tides. Yes. Okay. That was six or five? That was five. Five. Okay. Number four. Number four, I have not seen. Uh, It's a sequel. I've seen the original. Okay. This is a comedy franchise. Okay. And your last one is And Paul Giamatti. You're thinking big comedy franchise of this period. Was it like Grown Ups 2? No. The Grown Ups movies did not make this kind of money. That is true. This movie made $254 million in the US. Oh, God. For a comedy? Yeah. Just like a straight a comedy? comedy okay. Yeah. Who's above Giamatti? Uh, I'll give you two. Jeffrey Tambor and Justin Bartha. <sighs> the Hangover Part 2. Yep, you're right. Those movies made so much money. Yes. An obscene amount of money. Okay, three. Three is uh, Breaking Dawn Part 1. Oh, yes. Got. And then one, one is, is Harry Deathly Potter. Hallows Part 2. So we're just on So the last two. one you need is number two. It made $346 million. An incredible amount of money. This is not a superhero movie. And the last name that I will give you is Francis McDormand. And Mark's eyes just popped out of his head. What franchise is she in that made she's that kind of money? She's in a bunch of them. I think she's in three of them. It's not superheroes. Is it comedy or adventure? I guess adventure. These movies are pretty serious. Okay. Wow. Okay, who else is in it? Kevin Dunn, Julie White, John Malkovich. Serious? John Malkovich? Is it a Bourne movie? It is not. Is it kind of in that vein? It's certainly colored like a Bourne movie. <laughs> it's very blue. Okay. Uh, who else is in it? Rosie Huntington-Whiteley and Patrick Dempsey. Who, okay, who's the, who's the top build? The top build is Shia LaBeouf. Oh. What franchise was he in? He was the core of a big franchise that has moved on without him. Ah, Transformers. Yes. Is it? You want to guess which one? The number two? No, that's 2009, I think, which is Revenge of the Fallen. This one is Dark of the Moon. Dark of the Moon. Ah, of which course. Which I've heard is kind of fun. I saw Revenge of the Fallen, and I was like, well, this isn't that good. And so then I didn't see any after that. I saw Bumblebee. Bumblebee's all right. Yeah. uh, They're not good movies. All right. So back to Thor. Should we start getting into the romance? That was a fun game. Yeah, let's do it. I'm glad you liked it. We're going to play some more games next week. Oh, yes. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to not studying and just embarrassing myself. That's the goal. Anyway, we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points each week to help guide the discussion. This week, point one is, the way I've described it is, crashing into each other. I think that was legally your fault. Get the first aid kit. Do me a favor and don't be dead. Please. It happens twice. It's like the first scene of the movie. Yes, I know. And they do it again later in sequence. I love it. So I enjoyed this movie opening in media res with Natalie Portman because it really... It sets the tone that starting with the Anthony Hopkins prologue would have, like, that prologue would have set a completely different expectation. Yeah, I think this time I really appreciated, like, you kind of have to start with Jane and Selvig and Darcy on Earth. Because otherwise you don't get to them until, like, 30 minutes into the movie. Yeah. Otherwise you would expect just, like, an Asgard drama movie. So it helps to have this opening. So they're chasing a space event because she's an astrophysicist. And they're driving... And then they hit Thor with their car. Yep, because Thor has been banished from Asgard because he 
did an unapproved attempted genocide. Yeah, military expedition to Jotunheim to maybe kill them all, at the very least try to cow them into submission. I was really struck watching this movie for the first time, I think since like 2016, about the fact that like the Thor at the beginning of the movie who has to learn to be better is a Thor who goes on and on about the need to protect our borders. The Jotuns used to fear us. The Nine Realms are laughing at us. Like, he's a big fan of military adventurism. Yeah, I mean, he's a nativist imperialist. But also, that is much closer to Thor in the myth than the Thor of the comics. Yeah, it's just the weight of all of those particular ideas together had never really struck me until this viewing. Yeah. Especially with the hindsight of Ragnarok and how much that movie makes Asgard's imperial past more explicit. So they are kind of building on seeds that were planted in this movie. Yeah, and it was kind of nice to appreciate that too, because Ragnarok in particular is a movie that is disinterested in a lot of, like, Thor and Asgard lore. And so it was nice to appreciate the way that it's picking up on character stuff that I hadn't even realized. But then, yeah, so he's banished. Anthony Hopkins whispers into the hammer and then also sends it to Earth. And this is where we then catch up with the opening and Jane hits... (laughs) hits Thor with her car. Right. And then he gets up again, so then Darcy tases him. Yes. And then they have to bring a passed out Thor to the hospital because he has been hit with a car and tased. Right. I like when Jane is signing him into the hospital and Darcy is the one who makes the comment about hitting with the car and Jane's like, I grazed him. (laughs) I grazed him. (laughs) It's like, you crashed head on into him. It is not your fault he dropped in out of the Bifrost, but you hit him. Yeah. So they then basically just like drop him off and leave. But then while they're doing their science, their pictures of the space event, they see the outline of a body and she realizes that he- came out of the space so she goes to the tries to go to the hospital to find him but he is broken out of his restraints because he is thor and escaped the hospital he's still pretty strong but he doesn't have his usual levels of strength i mean he still has just like human ripped muscle guy strength but this is where we get the seed of them trying to realize they have to find him and darcy says will you just drive all over new mexico and jade goes i will if i have to as she starts backing up without checking her mirrors and hits thor with her car again we were talking about the like science and magic kind of thing jane's an astrophysicist a couple of times in the movie selvig the stellan skarsgård character is criticizing her like you are a physicist not a storm chaser what are you doing the things she's studying are einstein rosen bridges which are wormholes like She's convinced that these storms are wormholes, which they basically are. So the movie in its like, what's the scientific explanation for this magic is the Bifrost is a machine that can create wormholes because wormholes can't occur in nature. They have to be made by somebody. Right. So it's just a big wormhole gun. Pew pew. Cool. And so this brings us to point two where they go to the diner and start having a conversation for the first time. Fifty miles west of here. Why? To get what belongs to me. Oh, so you own a satellite now? It's not what they say it is. Well, whatever it is, the government seems to think it's theirs, so you just intend to go in there and take it? Yes. If you take me there now, I'll tell you everything you wish to know. Everything? Yes. All the answers you seek will be yours once I reclaim your name. Uh, This is the great, like, when people talk about this as a fish-out-of-water comedy... The scene that always comes up is Thor throwing the coffee mug on the ground and shouting, I will have another. It's a great moment. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, it tells you everything you need to know. Right. And part of what makes that scene work is Thor is so earnest in it. Yeah. He is happy. He loves the coffee. Imagine what he would do in Valhalla. You probably wouldn't like it this much, but he does. Yeah. So, yeah, this is where they. Go, she brings him to her apartment and gives him her ex-boyfriend's clothes. Um, Yeah, she's living in like a trailer. Yeah, she's been hurt. Her ex, she describes as good with patience, bad with relationships. The most vague, like, I have a past of troubled relationships you can get in a movie. And yeah, so they just start, you know, bonding. The big thing is they team up because S.H.I.E.L.D., the like shadowy government agency, has shown up to take over the site where the hammer fell to Earth. And they've also confiscated all of Jane's research. And so Thor wants his hammer. Jane wants all of her research. And so they team up to break into this S.H.I.E.L.D. facility to try to get them both. She like helps him get close 
He breaks in. He's not able to lift the hammer because he is not worthy, but he is able to sneak out one of her notebooks. And this brings us to point three, where they are now out camping in the desert. Are they on the roof? Are they? There's like a fire, though. Yeah, they're on the roof of the like garage where her like lab is. I guess they just built a fire on the roof? I think so. I guess fire pits do exist. Yeah, I think that's what's I assumed on. because like I looked away and then they were sitting around a fire, so I kind of just assumed they were like out in the desert. I mean, they're always in the desert, but this is where, you know, I called this point the fire or the spark. Ooh. Ooh. Because they start having a conversation. The all spark, like in Transformers? <laughs> it took me a second to remember that that is not a Marvel thing. I'm really glad you're safe. You've been very kind to me. I, I've been far less grateful than you deserve. Well, I hit you with my car a couple times, so I think that kind of evens <laughs> things out. Perhaps I had it coming. So they start talking. She's now realizing, like, he is Thor, and he explains how the nine realms are actually nine planets that are all bound together by, like, Yggdrasil is much more of a metaphysical concept than an actual tree, and then Asgard is responsible for keeping the nine realms, you know, safe and blah, blah, blah. And she, you know, starts giving him dreamy eyes. Yeah, it's all... As much as, you know, we were talking about this, and this is a conversation that surrounds Marvel movies these days. It is romantic, but it's very chaste. Completely chaste. The most sexual this movie gets is when he walks out without his shirt on, and the camera just eats it up as in yes. the same way that Darcy does. There is one scene that happens, I think, after Selvig gets Thor out of the S.H.I.E.L.D. facility, where they go out drinking together, and Selvig very specifically, offers to buy Thor another round if Thor leaves because he's worried that Jane has been getting too attached to him. Yes, that follows this scene, right? Uh, it's somewhere in there. It's somewhere in there. You've seen this more than I have. You should probably know the order of the I was scenes. usually asleep by this point. Okay, that's valid. So, yeah, they're bonding. Skarsgård, Selvig is getting, like, nervous about that and... You know, all. Well, he's also wary because, like, I appreciate this. They, like, kind of let Stellan Skarsgård be Swedish in this movie. He's like, all the crap that he's talking about, Mjolnir, the Bifrost, Thor, like, these are the stories that my mom told me when I was growing up. This is Norse mythology. Like, this dude is not Thor. Yes. And also so is he's kind of aware that, like, that... At best, this guy is crazy. Right. And, I mean, they also already broke into a government facility, which he was not on board with. And so he's like, we should just, you know, get back to doing science. But then, in point four... <laughs> the giant robot that they have to protect the casket in Asgard is... So it's the Destroyer. The Destroyer, okay. what it's called. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm, yeah. The mm-hmm. Destroyer has to be piloted by somebody, but it's a remote piloting. So Loki has instructed the Destroyer to go to Earth and, and destroy this town and kill Thor. So Odin has wearily fallen into his Odin sleep to recover from the strain of all of the, like, Thor stuff. Which the movie kind of set up earlier. I mean, he looks kind of tired, and Laufey calls that out when they're in Jotunheim. Laufey is like, wow, Odin, you're not looking so good. And, I mean, that is why the movie has Thor lined up to take over the throne, because Odin is tired. But then Loki, as the you know, second son with Thor banished takes over Asgard. And he wants to make sure that he can keep his hold on it. Right. So he can't let Thor come back to Asgard. And he banishes Sif and the Warriors 3 to Midgard as well. No, they sneak there. Oh, he that's right. Because yeah, he he's gone and lied to Thor and said that Odin is dead and I'm king. And I can't lift your banishment because I can't undo the last thing that Odin did right away. So then Sif and the Warriors 3 sneak there because Heimdall is on their side to tell Thor how bad things are and to try and bring him back. And then Loki sends Destroyer to kill all of them and basically, you know, erase all evidence of Thor. So then they have a big battle. Brother, whatever I have done to wrong you, whatever I have done to lead you to do this, I am truly sorry. But these people are innocent. Taking their lives will gain you nothing. So take mine and end this. But Thor doesn't have his powers. 
So Sif and the Warriors 3 take the lead, but then they get defeated. So to protect Jane, Thor has to be willing to sacrifice himself. He goes to face the Destroyer himself. himself. Yeah, and he's about to die, but then because of his willingness to sacrifice himself, he's shown himself worthy of Mjolnir. And it's through Jane's love that he regains his powers as Thor, as the hammer, like, flies to his hand and all of his cool armor comes back. And then he wins the battle and has to go to Asgard to fight Loki. I love, like, Thor stories that are, like, properly about worthiness. A lot of the the Jason Aaron comics that I mentioned do that really well. I like that. Like, having to regain the worthiness to take control, you know? Yeah. And also just, like, the sort of ongoing question of the idea that sort of, like, every day Thor has to go to pick up the hammer. And every day there's that question. That is a cool question. Wow. I didn't think about that. Anyway... Point five, Loki and Thor battle, yada, yada, yada. And then to prevent Loki from destroying Jotunheim with the Bifrost, like the just shooting a wormhole at the planet so it blows up, essentially. Right, Loki is hoping to destroy Jotunheim and basically be hailed as a hero of Asgard. Like, he's the one who saved Asgard. And then Thor has to, you know, Thor starts breaking the Bifrost to prevent the genocide of Jotunheim. And so Loki's like, if you break it, you'll never see her again. And so Thor has to make the choice, basically, to give up on his love, to save the world, to demonstrate his worthiness. And it's very sad. So Earth is lost to us. No. There is always hope. Can you see her? <laughs> yes. How is she? She searches for you. But then you cut to Jane being like, I'm going to use my astrophysics to solve wormholes so I can reunite with my love, Thor, the god of thunder. Yep. And that's the end of the movie. Yay! Yay! So the whole time, I forgot that the casket and the Tesseract were not the same thing. Um, Many people do not remember that. I thought that Odin had stolen the Tesseract from the Jotun, but with a different name. Yeah, no, because the Casket of Ancient Winters basically just does ice stuff. Yes, that's why I was confused when they were talking about the ice stuff, because I was like, I thought it did more than that. But then the Tesseract is just in a different box at the end of the movie. Yeah, the Tesseract is from Captain America, the first Avenger. Yes. And then that post credit scene where Nick Fury brings Selvig on board to the Tesseract project, that was shot by Joss Whedon on the set of the Avengers. And then Loki is, like, there, but invisible. And presumably then, like, goes to Thanos and is like, I can help you get this thing if you give me a place to conquer. I don't know. Yeah. Eh, whatever. Anyway. Whatever. (laughs) Will, after watching all of Thor, do you find the romance believable? I'm going to say largely yes. It's largely believable the way it's done. It's not given enough room to breathe to be fully believable. It's rushed. I think that is where, frankly, the sort of low stakes of the relationship help it. Like you never, even though like there is sort of an epic feel to the romance, you never feel like it is like a big established relationship. Like it's not asking you to believe anything more than like these people are really attracted to each other and want to be together. Right. And they've like fallen in the first stage of love. So I believe it, but also, I mean, it is, like, the idea that she kind of has to accept, she accepts before the giant robot shows up that he is from another planet and is the ancient god of thunder, with not that much proof yet. I think the only reason that she is as open to being around him as she is, I mean, again, she hit the guy with her car twice, like, all that stuff, but, like, I think she is really sort of thrown off her center by losing all of her research. Yes. Yeah, she is. And that that is part of why she is willing to, like, go along with wild stuff. Which all tracks. I just think she starts to buy into the Thor thing a little quickly. All right, so every week we rate the believability of a romance on a scale from 0 to 10. Where would you rate the believability of Thor's romance? I was thinking, like, an 8, honestly. Because you make a really good argument that the romance doesn't end as, like, with an undying claiming of love it ends with like a i'll be back to you yeah they're not married they're just two people that you know 
did kind of fall in love, but they haven't done anything so dramatic. Right. And I like, you know, one of the changes this makes from the original comics by uh, Stan Lee and Larry Lieber and Jack Kirby is that because you have like the Donald Blake character there who's a doctor. Uh, Jane Foster is his nurse. I like that she's a real doctor, like astrophysicist. She's an astrophysicist who's like doing her thing and they sort of both get to explain their worlds to each other. I think that's cool. Again, I wish she had more to do. Uh, That's the constant problem with Jane Foster in particular and romantic interests in Marvel movies in general. I want more romance in Marvel movies. I think I would enjoy it more. Absolutely. So where would you rate it? Um, I like an eight. That feels good to me. It's kind of higher than I thought we'd wind up. Me too, but I think what really sold me on it is, yeah, the fact that they ended up as just two people that are attracted to each other and not married or, like, (laughs) anything crazy. Do you think Jane or Thor is dateable? Um, not beginning of the movie Thor, because I am not a nationalist who wants to conquer other places. Good point. Uh, Jane, Um, yes. Jane, yes. End of the movie Thor, I am open to. I would rather date Thor from any other movie that he's in, though. Yeah. I'm a no on Thor, but a yes on Jane. Yeah. Do you think Thor... Well, this one's weird because they're like... I want to know from you, because I have seen all these other movies, and obviously we try to go just based on this one. Like, Do yeah. you think that Thor and Jane would find a way to be together and stay together? I mean, the way movies work, yes. But I don't know... I guess Thor... I mean, it's like, the thing is, I do know later movies, Thor decides basically to just stay on Earth. I think they will give the relationship a real shot. But also, she is a human Earthling, and he is a, like, space alien with magic powers. That might lead to some tension down the line. The weird thing for me, and in Thor 2, they talk about the fact that, like, the Asgardians are not literally immortal, but at least for humans, they might as well be. And I just think that makes a relationship really hard, because even if it's going pretty well, at some point, like, one person is aging and the other isn't, and that makes it, like, hard. Yeah, that is true, too. Like, he has to watch her age. And you could also imagine resentment on her part. Yeah. I mean, at the same time, she gets to have a hunky Thor her whole life. (laughs) Right. He will not let himself go. Uh, If you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would you choose? Um, I want to hear your answer first. Hmm. I mean, I feel like this is a pretty classic answer, but Darcy, she's a goofy political science major who picked up a bad internship because of, like, struggling to find a job, which I can relate to. Yeah, that's a good fit for you. And this is a um a Kat Dennings before Two Broke Girls. I like Kat Dennings. I think she's funny. I do too. I just don't really care for Two Broke Girls. Yeah, you know... Good people are in bad shows all the time. Oh, totally. You know, if you can get six seasons of CBS money, do it. Oh, yeah. I begrudge no one that kind of money. So I'm torn between Sif and Volstag. Both good choices. Sif is no nonsense, a loyal friend, very pretty, good with a sword. Volstag is the eater, right? Yeah, he's known as Volstag the Voluminous. All the Warriors 3 have the names. There's uh, Hogan the Grim, Fandral the Dashing, who's recast in the other movies and Volstagg the Voluminous Vandral the Dashing should have died um yes when, you're talking when, about on Jotunheim yeah when he stabbed through the chest he should have died I think it would have raised the stakes more and I think that would have been a good choice um he got recast because the guy who plays him in this movie Josh Dallas then played Prince Charming in Once Upon a Time and so he didn't have time to shoot Thor movies Volstagg is usually introduced in the comics holding a like turkey leg <laughs> but if you did have to choose one would it be Sif or Volstagg I'm going to go with Sif. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Many of the movies we cover have been turned into Broadway musicals. Do you think Thor should be made into a musical? Yes. I think of the Marvel movies, Thor would probably be the best one to adapt. Yes. This is the best one for a musical. Yes. I also do not want to open that door. (laughs) Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark did try, but I really don't think we need to, like, bring marvel to broadway right and part of the thing like obviously spider-man is the bigger name but thor's powers are probably like among the best suited for a musical because you can do it with like yeah it's light light effects it's light and sound you don't need like physical things right and i do i think you could have fun with like the fish out of water elements this movie but also like the high near shakespearean family drama yeah if you're gonna do one this is the one to do i agree All right, I think that's about it for Thor. 
Okay, Mark, I was delighted that you recommended we do a Marvel movie. Uh, not a thing I ever expected to happen. It's been a while. You gotta give the people what they want. And if there's something people want, it's Marvel movies. That is true. Um, are you interested in it by Eternals at all? Have you been seeing those trailers? I'm interested in Richard Madden. Sure. That's a hot cast. I just, I don't know if I can like dip my toe in to ones like that because it sounds like it matters or will follow the end game stuff. I think it's going to be one of the better ones to jump into because it's all new characters. That is true. It depends on how naked Richard Madden gets. Like, to be, like, fully honest, if he takes off more than his shirt, I will be there. Okay, well, I don't know if that's But I have a feeling he will not take off any of his clothes. I don't know. Marvel movies are pretty good about getting a shirtless shot. That's true. Well, next week is our 200th episode, Mark. It's been 200 episodes. Good lord. And we will be celebrating, as is our centenary tradition, by bringing on Fifi Fierce to talk about a DreamWorks movie. Mark, it's time for the final showdown. Who will win? Who will die? Whoever wins, we lose. (laughs) It's Monsters vs. Aliens. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or move suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. All right, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from Thor? Um, it's a good question. <laughs> I mean, what works for Jane is hitting someone with your car more than once. But yeah, also, but that seems don't bad. do that. So that is not my advice. Um, I'm going to say it's good to be interested in your partner's interests. Thor is really interested in Jane's astrophysics, and she's interested in hearing about the Nine Realms. I mean, gaining 20 pounds of pure muscle mass didn't seem to hurt either. But that was Tom Hiddleston. I thought Chris Hemsworth gained a lot of muscle weight too, didn't he? I mean, he probably did. Chris Hemsworth. Yeah, Chris Hemsworth stated that he gained 20 pounds for the role by eating nonstop and revealed that it wasn't until Thor that I started lifting weights. It was all pretty new to me. Oh, wow. So yeah, I mean, gains apparently doesn't hurt. (laughs) All right, well, there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay, so between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye now. Come into